From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. This is a podcast over the stories behind the innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders of the 3D printing industry. I'll, I'll touch three applications okay, end use parts for end use manufacturers that are looking for cost reduction out of an existing built material. That's first application. I have a bomb. It's very expensive. I've designed it for CNC production molding. Most of the parts there are were designed for traditional manufacturing. And, and I have a manager who asked me to reduce uh, 20% of the cost of this built material. That's Omer Blyer. Omer is the CEO and co-founder of Caster. Caster is a software tool that automatically runs analysis to determine 3D printability for end-use parts design. Chooses the suitability technology, the suitable technology for print while maintaining functionality, and turns multiple parts into one to maximize manufacturing possibilities for unique designs. We discuss his entrepreneurial journey and what's ahead for the AM sector. Before we get started, head over to www.3degreescompany and start subscribe to the podcast. Remember, you can listen to the show anywhere you download your podcasts, including Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Stitcher. Also, if you or your company are looking for materials, qualification, and general added manufacturing support, reach out to the team through our website or via email at info at 3degreescompany.com. All right, Omer, thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, I like to start with all the guests and kind of hear kind of their origin story, where they grew up, kind of what were some of their early early days like that kind of uh, planted some of the seeds to where you are today. So um, why don't we get started from there and and see where the conversation takes us today. Sure. First, thanks. Thanks again for the time and the opportunity. Um, so I'm Omel. I'm the CEO. It's like Homer Simpson without the age. Um, I'm from Israel, um, 38, father for three. In my background, I'm a mechanical engineer, and I also hold an MBA in entrepreneurship and innovation. They both from Tel Aviv University, that's in Israel. Um, I used to work for Stratadis, uh for many years, and in the end of 17s, I started Castro together with Elad. Elad is my co-founder and CTO of the company. Um, a lot, uh, and I know each other for 20 years and five days. We had a very union. specific, <laughs> uh, yeah. Lately, we served together in the Israeli Air Force, it's very common in Israel. We chatter in the armies and we started a company together. Uh, a lot is the VP RD of the company, he wrote code for huge companies and developers. Uh, so he is, uh, my second half, I would say. As for me, when I was in, in uh, I'm a mechanical engineer who, who was a presentations engineer, okay? I never really designed it stuff, but um, I was in, a, in an interesting position back in the days in Stratasys. I was an, an object employee. Object was the jetting side of Stratasys before the merge. And... Uh, through the merge and after the acquisition of Rabcat and MakerBot, I was in a position to, on the R&D side, but I was in a position to see customers, understand their needs, and really get to know to the technology, not only strategies, but all the technologies out there. Uh, the event was mostly around plastics. 
And we understood that the hardware is almost there. I mean, the hardware can do amazing stuff. The machines can do amazing stuff. That the software is missing, the applications to bring the parts to the printer. And with that mission, we started Castro. So, yeah, that's how we came into uh, today. So when you were kind of growing up, were you one of those mechanical engineers and the stereotypical mechanical engineers taking apart your parents' clocks and other devices yeah, around the house? I, or was I, there I, other uh, other ways that you got inspired? Yeah, I, I had a bike, like a motorcycle, and I had a tractor, which uh, which I drove. And uh, I, w- I was pretty good with, with the hands. But again, I can't say that I'm a classic mechanical engineer who knows how things work just by looking at them and imagine why they chose this material in this dimension. Um, I would say that what, what pushed me into uh, manufacturing specifically and additive manufacturing in general and additive manufacturing specifically is the fact that you can create something new, create something that doesn't exist, and uh, that's being more more the innovation side of things rather than the engineering side of things. And once we've identified a gap in the industry, that's what pushed me for entrepreneurship. Um, and yeah, it's already it's been five years, so I can't really remember, <laughs> but. Uh, but this is how we started this mission, right? And when, what was your first introduction to 3D printing? Had you known a little bit about it um, like before Object or like what? when did you, you start kind of seeing the technology more and thinking about it as part of your career path? Yeah, we, we had a few, few, not a course, but let's say a class within a course uh, within the university on on additive manufacturing it wasn't in a level that i can say that i understood what it is or what it means um the first time was was i was a student i started as a student in in objects okay uh, on the testing area of r d then i became an engineer then team leader then project manager then product manager um, but as a student, I, I, I got exposed to the industry and, and I would say that pretty fast I was able to visit customers and then I was exposed to the, the other technologies out there. Um, but yeah, I, I think the main application back in the days that it was before the hype of, uh, of the merged object and strategies, there were there was a lot of hype around earring aids and liners of, of, uh, of dental, which is still a very good application and use application on the plastic side on the polymer side. So uh, these were the first pictures that I saw of end use parts being um, manufactured in hearing aid or dental liner, which is a uh, Pretty disgusting to look at, but uh, once once you understand it's printed, then you think it's cool. Um, so yeah, these were my first uh, observations, I think. 
yeah, my first uh, real additive manufacturing, uh, like like true like end like end end manufacturing uh, experience came alongside the object. I was working at Burton at the time, and we had a uh, holiday party coming up, and I think the the guys had designed some VIP and VVIP rings, and they were about we got like 300 maybe 250 on one of the big connex systems and so mm-hmm. i was one of the new guys and uh we were spent the whole night scraping out the <laughs> the support and getting them all clean and fingers crossed yeah. that it's not going to turn anyone's hand uh purple <laughs> from, <laughs> from missing any of the support um so it's a, it's a certainly a great technology and as uh, maybe kind of a a perspective like how big was object before the stratasys merge like what was was it a sizable company and like when did you start like how big was it when you started yeah Yeah. when i started let's say it was a few hundreds employees let's say 400 500 r&d with about uh, 100 employees it was in the early stages of of mixing materials and mixing colors so not, not only a single material based on print. Um, and then it started to be interesting. And uh, it, it was a family feeling. I mean, it was a very, very, uh, I would say cozy because there were three floors in a building, but it was a feeling of... Uh, innovation going on and a lot of uh, communication among the engineers where you could learn very fast and move very fast and uh, and yeah as you said that when the colors came in or something that catches your eye right I mean it's something that must understand how it works or how come this can be in full color or it can be in to different colors, etc. This is where I joined, and it, it caught me in the same way as, as you described. Yeah. And as you think about kind of where, you, uh, and we'll get to kind of the caster piece in a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious as as you went through kind of this early part of your additive career at a company that was kind of small, medium sized, innovative got acquired that transition and uh, likely changes of uh, personality leadership how the company runs like what were some of the lessons that you kind of took away for that you maybe like put in your your back pocket as as, as wanted to start a company one day it's like oh I'll never do that it was like that I'll never make that decision or like how do, how do you think about even keeping kind of a culture that you want to promote or you want to work within? <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I I can say that for me, I mean, I was an engineer. I wasn't part of the discussion around the merge. I wasn't part of the business discussion about uh, uh, the the, collaborate, the high level business collaboration between the two companies. I was an object employee, and I kept being object employee after the merge. But what really caught me was was the the culture mix that that the company entered into we were let's say uh 
R&D was 85% Israelis. Um, business units were, were channels all, all around the world, but the headquarters was, was, <coughs> was led by uh, Israelis. <coughs> and when we started to, to host Americans that came to the office or to, or to meet with them online, etc., those very basics of uh, in Israel, when when an elevator hits the first floor, the door opens and it's like a diffuse, it's like a diffusion. Everybody goes in and everybody goes out in the same time. You don't know how it happened, but in the end of those five seconds, all the people that should be out are out, and all the people that should be in are in. Okay which is totally different than the way it works in the USA. In the USA, the door opens, everybody who should go out are going out, and those who should go in are going in, okay? It's, it's a culture uh, difference. It might seem like small mimics, but it requires a lot of uh, patience, I would say, um, to, um, to grasp that. So uh, the first um, lesson that I've learned, Israel is so small, the, um, anyway, we must go through the American market to succeed as a company in manufacturing and the willingness to accept uh, other, to, to not to accept, to, to, to succeed, to do this successfully, to mix culture successfully is, is crucial for the organization. That's, that's what I learned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry for being a psychological. No, person. no, that's, I, I get what you're saying. <laughs> and so, so how long did you spend at, at Object and, and kind of what was that transition to more of the entrepreneurial route? Can you talk about kind of how, how Caster got started? What was that um, path like? Yeah, so so the I started in Object 2012, I think, and then the, the merge was 14-15. It wasn't a specific event; it was like a year of uh, transaction. Then there was uh, a big hype around the, the combined strategies, uh, hype about prototyping in general, that was very um, uh, that affected all the others. And immediately, we saw. 100 desktop printers uh, companies coming up um, in one year. And uh, once this whole hype went down, let's call it this way, it was, I don't think it's exploded, but it, uh, it went down, it came down a little bit and and, uh, and the industry started to think about end manufacturing and prototyping was over. This is exactly the point in time when I started my MBA, my MBA in, uh, in Dublin University. And then I also started looking at end-use manufacturing and met customers at the at work. And I also met international students and, and a lot of uh, ideas came to, to mind. And uh, we started as a, as a small project in the MBA, and uh, once we saw that uh, people are listening to what we have to say, 
um, I uh, decided to to leave the company. And um, yeah, we, we started for something else. Um, and, and then after a very short period of time, mainly due to the very intense or very called intense, very crowded VC scene in Israel. Uh, when we started to pitch investors with the idea, it, it helped us to, to tweak it up to the point of what Castor is doing today, but we started a bit differently. And uh, so yeah, we started from and, and I knew a lot, I knew a lot for when years I pitched him, it took me like half a year to pitch him over a coffee, then over uh lunch then over dinner then i pitch his wife uh, five times and then i, uh, I you know the, the first investor is her wife um then i uh convinced him to leave his job as well and we started customer. okay so he was he was working part full-time not at the mba so okay right. did you have other partners at the M like while you were doing your 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 mba program working on this idea or was it mainly just you we had, I wouldn't call it partners, but we okay. did the atmosphere. The atmosphere was was that okay? Who are, who is aside? I mean, was going with us. The 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 first uh, legal help, the first uh, accounting help, the first uh, advice on business development came from this uh, environment, and that was very encouraging, very inspiring, very pushing us to, to do uh, entrepreneurship. And I think it pushed us uh, pretty far. So yeah, the first few partners that we had were from that environment. And it's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the, I guess, entrepreneurship scene in Israel? I mean, mm. it's anywhere you go, like entrepreneurship is probably like if you have an MBA class, maybe it's like maybe 10% or maybe 15% go to uh, like an entrepreneurship versus banks and consulting firms and whatever it may be but what um was the culture supportive of entrepreneurs and and going that path and um Ooh, it's a it's a long discussion i think israel at first it's the it's the uh driver of the um, economy in israel the high-tech uh, scene in israel is is one of the strongest things that Israel has to offer other than uh, defense and uh, and security. Um, and uh, I've done an MBA specifically in managing technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. There were few CEOs came out from that class. And in general, the Tel Aviv University is ranked, uh, I think, like a number uh, 18 numbers of, of entrepreneurs and number three number of, uh, of unicorns coming from specific um don't catch me in the numbers but but it's real like it's like silicon valley or it's like mit and, and israel is is uh is nine million people country whereas uh it's only the size of manhattan right so um so in that perspective, there is the, in Tel Aviv specifically, there is like almost a, 
a lot of people you know are doing are, are, are choosing that path because the the knowledge of the experience we've done that 10 years ago are are sharing because the government's uh, subsidized projects that are being very innovative because the the universities are pushing for inter- entrepreneurship in the professional there are those who already done three four times an exit it, it, it's very much pushing you towards that direction it does requires a lot of uh, courage and, and to compromise and other stuff in life but uh, I can definitely say that uh, it's it's not weird to think on going on your own high tech startup in Israel it's it's pretty um, being pushed to that if you have the capabilities and the, the, the environment that supports you in that perspective. Okay. And so we haven't really talked about it much yet, but w- what is Caster? What's kind of the, the the technology? What does it what does it do? What's kind of the pitch? Right. Uh, so Caster is a software company. We're doing what's called automatic bomb optimization, bill of material optimization. It's first a decision support system for utilizing industrial 3D printing, which means we're enabling manufacturers like Stanley Black and Decker and uh, and um, ThyssenKrupp and John Deere and others. We help them to decide whether to prefer additive manufacturing over traditional manufacturing methods when it can save them time and money. We're doing that by analyzing CAD files and 2D drawings technically and economically, but what's different about Castor is that we're doing that in scale, which means Castor is usually being used as a screening tool where you can upload the whole dashboard of a car, the whole inventory list of spare parts, the whole assembly or sub-assembly of something that a manufacturer wants to uh, optimize or to check whether additive can help, and within seconds, we give a quick assessment uh, whether there are parts that make sense to use that to manufacturing out of those a lot of parts at once and highlight the benefits of them, whether it's a supply chain benefit, sustainability benefits, a cost reduction benefit, lead time acceleration benefits, etc. It's hard to identify those cases. It's not common cases that a part is not suitable for additive manufacturing. But once there is a part that makes sense, either as is or either with design changes, and I'll touch that in a second, then we're providing all the information around this uh, this finding, and the user can interact with the software and change the assumption and, and check even uh, like a deeper, a little deeper analysis, a little a little deeper analysis on the business side as well to to to, to get the basics of uh, understanding whether there is really an option to use additive instead of traditional manufacturing for a specific part. When I've said um, design changes, one of the biggest benefits that the software provides is the ability to automatically identify BFAM opportunities from a whole bill of materials. So for example, we're very good in parts consolidation, the ability to combine multiple parts into one. So to identify adjacent parts, three, four, five adjacent parts out of a large assembly and say, hey, those three parts as a single part can save can save money. And how would you go about 
like is that like okay there's the baseline assumption okay these parts are next to each other so like that's a that's a requirement for consolidating mm -hmm. but it, is it then like it, uh, uh, material like okay they're all the same material which is good they all see the same sort of environment like is it there's probably it's a lot a, of assumptions right on that it's a 60 page patent so uh, i can't um, I, i'll try to summarize it into sure. to your sentences but you, everything that you said is right i mean first you need to identify the two parts are adjacent right? there are yeah. a few rules that uh, the part should should stand in we are identifying the connection method between two adjacent parts to say that there is no movement that they're they're, they're they belong to the same environment to the same space or have a relationship between them okay uh and then uh when once two three four five adjacent parts were identified we're applying all the rules of a single part to, to think whether as a single part they make sense to that they're affecting materials as you said material properties uh geometry limitations 12 different tests there small holes small thin walls um accuracy of uh, of tolerances etc cost analysis whether this whole thing has a chance to be cheaper than five different parts being made in cnc or injection molding or digesting or vacuum forming etc because otherwise we don't believe that uh, it will be very hard to convince engineers to use additive if you don't show them the financial benefit lead time analysis whether this single part using a single package a single thing can arrive faster than five different parts being arrived uh, separately to manufacturing facility somewhere and eventually we're doing stress analysis we're also doing assuming forces or we're asking the user to put forces and the user can as a single part can use it, the user can assess whether the part what's the likelihood of failure of the part real life according to planet balance analysis uh, for anisotropic materials based on a specific tray orientation that we choose for the consolidated part so if the answer for all of that is is a green v then we're highlighting this opportunity out of a lot of parts at once automatically for thousands of parts at once as a screen yeah and in comparative like com comparatively like the the status quo process right now is you've got one or two engineers who gets a uh, right. uh, 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 a um some homework from the boss saying hey like go through our <laughs> our product lines and tell me which ones are viable for 3d printing and if you have 10,000 like it's going to be a nightmare to do that and so your software kind of takes that process in a very structured quantitative manner and and kind of does that sifting and, and does that um analysis in an automated fashion so i think there is a layer of of providing an autom automatic tool to those who have this role as you said to to analyze a lot of parts of ones and identify and there is a layer of intelligence like the parts on validation like the the weight reduction identification that we're very good at okay we're not an apology optimization we're a generative design company but we are very good in identifying bulky parts that if you'll make them hollowed mm. they they will utilize the benefits of additive manufacturing that that's an intelligent layer that even a student or or an experienced 
additive manufacturing expert that, that go over 10,000 parts in, in, I don't know, in two weeks, it will be hard for him to think on those options. We're highlighting those again automatically uh, for a lot of parts. I think we, we've talked to uh, one of the car largest car manufacturers that we all know in, in Brazil, like uh, two months ago, they hired an expert to analyze, to analyze parts. He analyzed 2,000 parts over the last six months. We're analyzing 2,000 parts in five minutes. That's pretty much the, the equivalent, okay? So uh, we're not replacing the engineer. We're giving them a tool to do what they need to do automatically and leave them to focus on those 50 parts that make sense to do a deep dive analysis on those 100 out of 10,000 makes sense to, to dig into the numbers. You see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because there's still a level of like, even if it's a green V, like there's more steps afterwards to get it into right. Right. <laughs> into manufacturing and convince someone that this is a good good switch. Um, no question. We're either integrating into the solution coming after Castro from a software perspective, deep dive analysis tools, uh, workflow solution tools. If you want to send five samples in a service bureau, through a service bureau, Fast security uh, solutions, all those kind of stuff that are after Castro. Castro is two steps before that. Okay, so we're we're either integrating, I mean, shifting the user through those solutions coming after Castor, or um, but what we state clearly, you need a an engineer. It can happen right. without an engineer. And those steps are great. And can you describe kind of with your typical customer, like how does, or, or organizations that you're working with, like how do these conversations go? Like clearly there's a very, like there's an end user that's like running the software and and kind of manipulating and putting the files in, but are there usually like in successful cases or like as you're seeing more and more people think about additive, is it a entire organization decision or like a pockets of organizations say, hey, like this is a real problem. Like when does it become elevated enough that it's it makes more sense to go with a automated, intelligent software approach than just throwing a guy at <laughs> at, at the problem and say, like, come up and 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 see what what it means. Like where's the value shift have to come in or when when are people starting to see it make make a lot of sense? So I'll try to generalize the the answer that that I mean the answer to your question is the holy grail. If uh, everybody had an answer, then then they would uh, convince everybody to use additive. I'll, I'll touch three applications. Okay, end use parts for end use manufacturers that are looking for cost reduction out of an existing built material. That's the first application. I have a bomb. It's very expensive. I've designed it for CNC, for injection molding. Most of the parts there are were designed for traditional manufacturing. And, and I have a manager who asked me to reduce 20% uh, of the cost of this build material. Okay, that's one application that we see a lot. The other is uh, spare parts, jigsaws and fixtures, uh, production line, aiding tools, etc. That's improving the production line, the operation, the the 
overall thinking of an of an operation manager, maybe a purchasing manager, a procurement manager of the company. That's application number two. And the third is uh, is R and D, improving. Uh, it, it's now more NPI rather than prototyping. Prototyping was mostly in 2016, 17. Okay. Now it's NPI. It's those first 500 units, NPI new product in production. The first 1000 units that I'm doing in an alpha beta mode. And, and I need to, and I, I'm considering using additive to ship that to my customers. So these are the three applications. Okay. In the first run, the value is cost reduction, right? I have a part. It's a low volume, high mix, uh, product that I'm working on. Low volume means thousands of units in a year. High mix means high customization, high variety of components, high complexity of the geometry. And I have a task to reduce costs from an existing design. I can give an example of, uh, Stanley and Decker in Danbury, Connecticut, using us to reduce a cost of a, of a machine that makes helicoids. Helicoids that uh, being used for automotive, aerospace, medical devices, etc. Okay, but the task was to reduce cost from the machines. Okay, I'm talking on a machine which is in the size of this room. It's, uh, it has a hundreds or thousands of parts in it, and uh, they uploaded assemblies and sub-assemblies to identify parts that make sense to this additive. So in that application, we've identified uh, a part that is a metal part that was delivered in nine days versus nine weeks and saved 50% of its traditional manufacturing costs. They printed five samples, they tested this for two months, and it's now being used as an additive part, which is a part they never thought of. Okay? They're not experts in additive there, and it and they, they found an opportunity that wasn't on the table before using um, an automatic software to identify that. Okay, so that's the value is cost reduction, and, and that's for non-expert to identify opportunities. Let's take uh, jigs tools and fixtures and spare parts. Okay, um, I, I I won't use names, but but. Let, one of the largest uh, food and beverage companies, they have 2 million spare parts sitting in a warehouse that needs to serve uh, 400 breweries around the world. And these 2 million spare parts are a huge supply chain issue for them, okay? It's not that easy to send a spare part today from one place to another in the world. And they're looking for a way to uh, identify parts that can be that they can avoid keeping on a shelf, okay? What we all call digital file inventory, right? It's, it's a buzzword that uh, that we use for a few years. So they're really looking for a digital file to replace 1,000 units sitting on a shelf for 10 years and are being kept just in case uh, the long tail spare part. So they're using Castor just to know, they're not printing, okay? They're using Castor just to know whether there are opportunities like that out of 2 million square parts, okay? It's also a, a sustainability thing for them. They want to show that there are opportunities to reduce carbon emission. And if I can avoid manufacturing 1,000 units and keeping them on the shelf and then um, make sure that the absoluteness for sure will 
consume CO2, then I can make only three parts. They can be manufactured in a service bureau, strictly lumbers from where they actually need them. And they're using us to show this carbon emission opportunities to their managers. That's uh, a clear added value there. So that's spare parts. That's either supply chain or either sustainability. And the last example is R&D. I can say that they're, uh, we have a company called the uh, Maxian Wheels, for example. They're they're using their tier one manufacturer of, uh, of, of cars, infrastructure, rims, trucks, uh, um, really the infrastructure of car. And they had performance issue that they were looking for a way of improving that using additives. Pretty rare, okay? We all know that we probably need either DFM or some kind of a, an improvement in mechanical properties to do that, right? But in an environment where there is a, a high replacement rate of, of, uh, of a component within a working station at, uh, at such a company that is doing tons of rims in a year, then for them, um, the opportunity identified the opportunity to use additive created a whole different um scenario of um, of, of r d cycles around the specific aspect that we need to do to create a rim um so they used us to again identify the opportunity that a metal part can replace according to the dry uh, numbers can replace a metal part. And uh, yeah, it went uh, pretty well. Margin still in instead of tool still, very strong, okay, high ultimate tensile strengths still. It was replaced by something that is less, that the ultimate tensile strength is, is less than the original traditional manufacturing material, but still, doing the job it's very um available I and mean, the availability is high so you can get it pretty fast and you can replace uh something so anyway it was a good case of uh opening the minds of engineers in r d phase to think on additive and identify those case so this is the value here is education to the organization education to Somebody who is an additive manufacturing expert identified a case using the software and he told about it to the whole organization. And the value was education around using additive manufacturing to the other engineers. Okay, so cost reduction, supply chain benefits, sustainability, and education. These were and, the and I mentioned as well as the technology, the, the manufacturing, the printing technology, the materials improve, get cheaper your software only get becomes more valuable, right? Because there are more and more opportunities to, to potentially use it. Yeah. We, we have more than 150 industrial grade printers in the database, more than 250 different materials today in the database. We're updating that all the time. Uh, we're, we tend not to do prototyping and, and your desktop solution. So it's not like it's being changed every day. It's being... A new material is being added uh, every every 
few weeks and a new printer is being added, let's say every month or so. Um, and we're helping them to, to keep up with the, with the rhythm of development. That's, that's a huge advantage that we have this huge value. And maybe taking a step back out of the technical stuff, like what are, um, what's been the funnest part of running your own company or, or having kind of going off the, the entrepreneurship path? Uh, the fun, Ooh, I forget. I used to have hobbies, but uh, <laughs> I don't. Well, you've got three um, kids too, so yeah, kids, <laughs> it's uh, not just the company. <laughs> yeah. Being a CEO and a father, that's for three kids, young kids, that's, uh, that's not fun. But um, what I can say, for, first, in, in, a, in a startup, there is the whole thing around fundraising, okay? Um, I can't say that it's fun, but it takes a huge amount of energy, time, and uh, and uh, expertise, I would say, uh, around that. Um, what's nice around around uh, raising, uh, meeting investors in general is first, they're smart people, because okay? they see a lot of things that will happen in the future, and they can connect the dots, you can say, okay, even if you're just pitching them a story, they have the ability to see how it may look like, although the reality today doesn't support that, okay? So so it is uh, an interesting part of a startup to, to pitch a story that doesn't exist, and then after two years to really create Okay, uh, parts consolidation that, uh, as I've said, that's a patent and that's, that's something that took us two years to develop. Okay, that was an idea to identify adjacent parts that make sense to be combined together. It's hard for an investor to imagine that. Okay, that it's happening with an automatic tool. And, um, and that's, that's one set of things. Uh, the other is, uh, We've talked about culture. We've talked about the, the culture differences between Israel and, and the rest of the world. Israel, Israel is very, uh, you know, the rudeness, the, the intensity, the uh, everybody wearing the army thing. Uh, that's uh, very much affecting the the culture of the companies. And but then you have an opportunity to create your own culture. I mean, your own to bring your own. Uh, values to the culture of the company and uh, to see, for example, moving fast, okay, to, to see how a startup like ours can move fast in relations to what's the large CAD companies are doing, or the large PLM companies are doing, or the large ERP companies are doing, or the large um, PDM companies are doing, that's, uh, that gives you, that's inspiring. I mean, that gives you power to, to say, hey, if I'll do that faster, I can be first. And if I can be first, I can be better. And if I can be better, I can raise money. And that's, that's something that, uh, I think um, it makes the startup uh, more special. Awesome. 
I just got two questions left. First, uh, kind of before we we started chatting, you had mentioned that you've got some um, further developments. You kind of touched on it with uh, one of the example case studies, but the kind of looking at CO two and kind of carbon um, emissions when it comes to manufacturing. So, you want to tell us a little bit more about how that's developing in in the coming months? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for for asking. I didn't I didn't mention. I think. I've tried to emphasize how does it uh, relate to the customer. There are companies that are being measured on innovation, on, on showing innovation around identifying opportunities to reduce carbon footprint. And we all know that additive has a chance to play a role in this game, but it's hard to get to because we need to identify it. So what we've developed is a calculator, an automatic calculator to assess the carbon emission um reduction that additive can provide versus traditional manufacturing and it's part of our screening tool i mean you can now use caster and to and and leave the cost reduction lead time assessment all of that aside but use caster as a as a tool to assess whether there are parts that make sense is that manufacturing from a sustainability perspective only and to screen a lot of parts at once and identify those it's a calculator that, that takes into consideration the whole life cycle, what's called, okay, the full life cycle of a part, the material it's being made of, what energy was used to create this material, the energy being used to create the parts, okay, CNC or injection molding, or die casting versus additive. Then the product use itself, if it's an aerospace, Part, then you manage to reduce one kilo and that's flying on an aerospace for 20 years that's reducing a lot of co2 but to reduce one kilo from a robot sitting on a floor that's uh that's saving less right so so the product use the transportation of the around the part in the supply chain arena of the part in traditional manufacturing versus that and the end of life what do you do with a part after in an industrial application, what do you do with it after it's finished its, its role in its life? The disposal ways, shelf time, etc. We're taking all of that into consideration and we're trying to highlight opportunities where additive can help. Uh, we have a few partners that we're working with within the industry uh, on that. Uh, so it's not like only Casper uh, came up with that, um, some, some of the largest brand in our industry. And uh, we are going to issue an uh, end-of-the-year report for 2022 uh, that includes our a review of what we saw when we've analyzed parts based on carbon emission reduction. And there are some interesting uh, findings there, like analyzing 50,000 parts and see what makes more sense to that from a sustainability perspective. That's uh you can visit our website 3dcaster.com and find this uh report, but we won't do sales today. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So one last question. Yeah. I've been uh uh asking the last few guests kind of this as we wrap up, but um What's a, a favorite book or a, a meaningful book that has kind of impacted how you think in your career or, or something you've recently read that uh, you'd like to share with the audience? 
Um, that's an interesting one. Uh, I don't know how much, of, not a book, but how much of you saw the recent episode of, uh, it's called The Dropout, that's a Disney Plus, that's uh, on Elizabeth Holmes and everything that happens, that happened in Theranos. I think that's uh, an enlightening way to, to see how um, a startup reacts to the environments and what things can happen. Uh, that's recently, I just saw the, the, the show, which is, I thought it was good. And uh, I read a book called The Hard Thing about, The Hardest Things About the Hard Things. That's on Ben Kovovitz. Um, he was the, uh, he was a very, um, successful entrepreneur back in the days and, and he wrote about what hard it's hard about having a startup and, uh, and I think that uh, one of the until you're facing that yourself uh, the book describes in a very good way uh, what you are about to face and that's a good preparation for those who wants to start a startup yeah excellent well, thank you so much for joining the episode today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and all the hard work that you guys are doing there and look forward to, to seeing you in the new year. Well, thanks again for the time and the opportunity. And uh, we're now before Christmas, so Merry Christmas. And uh, I know this will be um, in the air after. So Happy New Year to everybody. And uh, thanks again for the time and the opportunity. <laughs>